Hi, this is Gilmore from Triumph, and you're listening to Michael's Record Collection. Hello, and welcome to episode number 33 of Michael's Record Collection. I'm your host, Michael Citro, and I'm very excited about this episode because I spoke with Gil Moore from the band Triumph. The legendary Canadian power trio has long been one of my favorite bands, and it was a blast talking with Gil. I asked him about the band's recent induction into the Heavy Metal Hall of Fame. We also talked about the new Triumph Rock and Roll Machine documentary, which premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival in September. It's an outstanding documentary, and fans of the band or rock docs in general are sure to enjoy it. We also discussed the band's history, some of the great music Triumph released, the Allied Forces 40th anniversary set, and what Triumph fans can expect next. I'm really excited about this episode, so let's get to that interview. Here we go. Welcome to Michael's Record Collection. I'm very happy to have with me a very special guest for this episode, Gil Moore, drummer and co-lead vocalist for Triumph. Thank you so much for your time, sir. Nice being here, Michael. Gil, I want to congratulate you on being inducted to the Heavy Metal Hall of Fame. Thanks. That was a that was a, a real honor for us too. There's a lot of great names in there, and we were uh, we were happy to be alongside them and honored. I wondered if you had always considered Triumph to be a heavy metal band, considering that you you've always had this uh, a very strong blues and progressive rock, and even at times classical uh, elements to your music. Well, you know, that's a good question. Um, you know, our very first song uh, that we uh, wrote as an original, which is called What's Another Day of Rock and Roll, it's got a lyric in it uh, that says blast and heavy metal right across the land. So I, I must admit there must have been something in our heads at the time about that notion. I mean, the expression heavy metal was very, very new at that time. It 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 was just something that you know maybe within the last 12 months i'm going to say of when triumph started even even was a category if you will but as you said mike and i were bluesmen and um many of the bands that are considered heavy metal uh you know uh, if, if you look at led zeppelin maybe or or the yardbirds as as anchors uh you know in the genre you know the rolling stones they all fed off the same blues artists you know the howling wolves of this world and 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 so on uh you know that that mike and i did now rick to your point uh completely different you know his background was in progressive rock and uh, a little bit of classical so more along the richie blackmore lineage you know and yet if you listen to deep purple one of my favorite bands i would throw the question back to you are they heavy metal <laughs> yeah. yeah it's same uh, situation with richie playing you know things that were say alternative guitar parts you might say in in a band that would otherwise perhaps be classified strictly as heavy metal yeah it's uh you i'm glad you brought that up that it's in your lyrics because it sounds like you you declared yourselves right from the beginning there
I think that, you know, we didn't have a lot of preconceived notions. We were just trying to write songs and uh, we were trying to use whatever talent, you know, each one of us had in the most effective way and uh, and be sympathetic, you know, to each other's influences. So I think that's why most of the songs that have bluesy melodies, I ended up singing them. Uh, most of the uh, more, you know, the major chord uh, songs and so on tended to be songs that Rick sang. But I think maybe, you know, it turned out to be a pretty good combination because it made us different than, uh, you know, I, I haven't had anybody say to me, oh, you guys were identical to boom, whoever that would be. It, it, I've never really had a triumph comparison, you know, other than other than to Rush. But the comparison to Rush is is really about the fact that we're three piece and we're from Toronto mm -hmm. and Getty and Rick both sing high. I don't think anybody's compared the music at all. So there's really been no triumph sounds exactly like, you know, whoever, Thin Lizzy or Nazareth or Ted Nugent or, you know, Blue Oyster Cult or Journey. There's never been any of that. We've always been uh, all alone in the end zone with whatever our whatever our musical motif is. Well, love it or hate it. We were what we were or yeah. are what we are. For sure. You had a documentary made and it it's called Triumph Rock and Roll Machine and it premiered at the Toronto uh, International Film Festival on September 10th. I was able to to get a couple of screenings of that in. And I got to tell you, it's it's one of the better rock and roll documentaries that I've seen. Uh, who came up with the idea? Was that from the band or did did Banger Films bring this to you or, or where did that originate? Well, it, it actually started with yours truly. I, I just had an idea. Uh, based around the fact that um, I'd collected a lot of Triumph archives and had and piles of video. And it was just a kind of a, you know, kind of a dumb notion like, oh, you know what? This stuff is just going to all turn to dust if we don't do something with it. So I, I approached a buddy of mine at, at NBC Universal, Ron Suter, and I asked him if he would, uh, you know, if, if Universal would, would put money into it. Uh, and he immediately said yes. And he triggered a, a whole slew of investors like Bell Media and uh, Rogers Media and, um, you know, uh, Slate Music. And so they just, you know, kind of all got behind us. And then at the very end, Live Nation stepped up when they heard about it and they put money into it. So Banger had lots of financial support to do what they wanted to do. But it just started from that simple idea, Michael, like I have a bunch of old tapes and, uh, you know, maybe it'll be a good idea to put something together to kind of say thank you to the fans and let them know that, you know, as uh, Edgar, Edgar Winter said, uh, you know, still I'm alive and well, you know? Yeah. Bringing up the fans is uh, a good segue because 
this had a this documentary had an emotional impact beyond what what a lot of these types of documentaries have in that you had this fan event and you were filming the fans uh, in their homes at times and and there were some some that had some hard luck stories and, and had gone through some tough times and and it really brought a, a big emotional sort of an, an a climax to the end of this uh, to this documentary. I don't want to give too much away because I know people will want to watch it and I don't want to spoil it. But um, did this thing turn out how you hoped or was it were there things left out you'd have liked in there or, or did it surpass what you had even hoped? Um, I think it surpassed what I hoped. I mean, I'm the wrong guy to ask when it comes to if you were in charge, what would have happened? Because I keep fixing and fixing and fixing. I'm I'm a perfectionist. So the thing would be eight hours long and I'd still be in the edit bay. We had a lot of good laughs between uh, Mark Ricciardelli, who did all the uh, editing. He was a fabulous editor and myself. We became really good buddies going through this. But I, I think, honestly, I, I, I think they surpassed, you know, anything that myself or Mike or Rick might have fashioned. And, and, and only because, uh, well, two reasons. One, because they have that independent lens. So they're, they're looking at it with a completely clean slate, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that gives them perspective that the band doesn't have. And secondly, uh, just their talent. Directing a film is, is not something for you know, musicians that you know, fancy themselves as film directors to do. Film directors are film directors for a reason. They, they the same reason musicians are musicians. They have a love for it. Um, they spend, you know, a, you know, most of their life, like in the case of Sam Dunn and Mark, they've devoted their lives to this. And they're very, very talented people. We also had Don Allen, who is our uh, Triumph's video director for uh, many years, was also uh, a co-producer of the film. And Don provided some uh directorial insights uh along the way uh as well because of his experience with the band so i think we were very fortunate to be surrounded by people that were very talented that the two writers originally uh, peter goddard wrote the original treatment and then uh ralph chapman actually wrote the screenplay they did a terrific job in forming some of the narrative i'll i'll call it as well so all these people did a they really did a great job much better than the band could have possibly done uh, if it was left if it was left up to us <laughs> i think it'd still be in the edit day actually <laughs> um gil where is this where is this is it already available to the public or or do you have a distribution channel set up is it going to be a netflix thing or right now it's strictly at the film festival stage so i know that they're in negotiations right now with a uh, a film festival uh, in the United States. I don't think I'm at liberty to say which one. Mm-hmm. And uh, in Canada, the distribution is on uh, Bell Media, which is the CTV National Network. So it's it's I don't know what the equivalent would be uh, in America. One of the big you know ABC or CBS or something like that is carrying it in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's on free TV. And then uh, they have a cha- they have uh, Crave. Uh, streaming, which again would be sort of the equivalent of Netflix up here. So in Canada, it's CTV network on free TV and then streaming over Crave. I think they're going to hold it back because they're waiting to get a simultaneous, at least North American release, if not worldwide. And I know they're in negotiations with several of the streamers in, in America 
And also, I know they're talking about potentially uh, cinema exposition. So uh, both in Canada and the U.S. So that would be an interesting twist. Uh, mm -hmm. I know there's some issues regarding COVID and, and, and so on. So some of those processes are a little hobbled at the moment, but it should be widely available in the United States is the, is the ultimate end result, which I, I would expect we're talking uh, first quarter next year. That would be great. One of the things that stuck out to me was that there's some backstory of the band that is filled in with some, it's your voices, but it's animated. And and I got a kick out of the animations and I wondered who who was, who did the animations and, and were you happy with your, your likeness? <laughs> we, we had nothing to do with that. That's strictly, uh, you know, the director's uh, call, as, mm -hmm. as I'll say. And, and initially all the rough cuts we saw the, the animation would come in and there would be no animation. There'd be a black slide that said animation here. <laughs> <laughs> so we got used to watching the movie with these black slides that said animation here and not seeing the animation. And, you know, I know Mike and I'm not so sure what Rick's feelings were. Mike and I were questioning it. We were like, I don't know about this, you know, <laughs> but it's because we were really never shown anything. And then when we when we finally were at the Toronto International Film Festival and we were there for the screening and we saw the complete movie with all the animation, all of a sudden we kind of had the aha experience mm -hmm. and we realized, you know what, this was a good call. I can tell you the directors told us the purpose of the animation is to cover spots in the in the narrative where there are no supporting photographs or video. Right. So that's yeah. a, that's the the theoretical logistics behind it. But I also think it's a I also think it's a style. I, I think they made a they made a conscious decision. Hey, we're going to use animation and this is the it's going to be part of the thread that we weave because mm -hmm. otherwise they could obviously just edit the film and change the narrative to suit the footage they had. Yeah. It, I think it I think they made a good choice. I think it worked really well. And, and did a good job of helping tell the story and fill in some of those gaps. So, uh, and, and it's it's not a cheesy thing at all. You would think of animations, you think of cartoons, and you think it maybe it's a little silly. But I, I thought it worked really well and, and helped tell the story. So they did a good job with that. Without spoiling much of the part of the documentary about the fan event, can you just tell me a little bit about how the fans were identified and chosen and invited to that event? Yeah, I mean, it was an amazing thing. It was a, it was a Triumph fan who who actually had made this request to me, had written me a big, a long letter. And she's in the movie. They interviewed her. Mm -hmm. And coincidentally, this is a one in a 10 million shot. 
she is a uh, family member related to Ralph Chapman, the writer. So, which was a, a really, uh, you know, like I said, one in 10 million shot. She wrote me a letter asking me if a bunch of Triumph fans could come up from uh, mainly from the United States, but some from other parts of the world, just to tour Metalworks Studios. They just mm -hmm. kind of wanted to come to the mothership and hang out. So in the process of telling her, yes, I, I would let I would let that happen. I mentioned it to the film directors and, and, the, and Ralph, the writer. And the next thing we knew, we found out that Nancy was Ralph's cousin and that they liked the idea so much. They said, let's make it part of the film. So one thing led to another uh, to answer your question about how the fans were selected. Banger Films handled that by sort of putting it out there. I, I, believe, I believe it was along the lines of tell us why you want to be there and what's your connection to Triumph, something like that. And they got, uh, of course, they only had 150 slots. So they, they had to cut down this, this big list and mm -hmm. they got all these submissions and they went through every single one and they handpicked the people literally numbered from one to 150. And when they came on site, they literally had you know, a slot, a, a number assigned, a seat assigned. It was like completely, you know, you'd think the, you'd think the military had run it. <laughs> yeah, well, it, 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 I think it did add a lot to the film and it, it, and it did reinforce that bond that Triumph always had with the fans. So I think it was a good move. Daily routine takes your soul lost without a trace. Hold you down and turn you round and put you in your place. Another day, another dollar, another pretty face. Another chance to lose yourself in the end of I was surprised at how much stuff you had in storage at, at Metalworks in the attic. I would love to spend some time up there for a few hours. <laughs> Come up and visit us. <laughs> yeah, I would love it. Talk a little bit about the history of the band. The, you had kind of recruited Mike to play bass. He was working at a, at a music studio and you used to rent gear to him. But where did you first cross paths with Mike? Well, it was really through a booking agency Mike was, he was pretty successful with his early bands. And when I say successful, we're talking about bands of kids, right? And, mm -hmm. and Mike could get jobs. So Mike was a, a wheeler dealer and he, he had a band, they had matching suits. Um, that was a big deal, uh, deal changer there. If you were good enough to have matching suits and he had glossy eight by tens. So <laughs> kind of way ahead of my band, you know, my band was still, you know, we had the really blurry pictures and we had like ragtag clothes that didn't make any sense. And all the agents would harass us saying, you know, can't you guys get matching suits? Can't you guys get good eight by tens? So Mike was, um, he was ahead of his time. Uh, I met him at our, our booking agency because he, some of his bands practiced there and, and my bands practiced there. And so we ran into each other and by happenstance, really. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and then he went on and, and, um, uh, you know, as it shows in the movie and is really no secret, 
you know, I had this little kid company that I started in my parents' basement where I was making speaker cabinets and stuff and, you know, sawing the wood myself and, you know, soldering the speaker wires and all this kind of stuff. I didn't really know what I was doing, but I knew I had an interest in, in uh, sound. And uh, so that, yeah, we met that way too, because I started to rent speakers to his band and, you know, a lot of them blew up. So I had to go back more often than not and deal with them about all the problems we were having. So yeah, he was pretty understanding about that, but we became buddies through the process and uh, you know, and then we started to play together and, mm. uh, and, and we, we weren't serious really. We were playing together. It was more like a weekend band and we, we'd kind of given up both of us on the brass ring very recently so when we started to play together that's what we would talk about about oh man you know this business like it's just so hard to have a band and nobody you know you can't get a break you know the agents are really hard to get jobs from and um you know everybody harasses you to play cover music and dress like an idiot (laughs) and you know it's just you feel like you're up against the the entire world you know but we always had this sort of burning desire to well, you know, at least I know you're, you get it and I get it. If we could just find one more guy that would fit into this mold of this band that we can both see in our mind's eye, you know, maybe we could actually do something. So we, we, it, it just became a topic that we discussed more and more. And then finally, one day we just decided we we're kind of, kind of looking at each other. Like, I know we're both crazy, but we're going to try this one more time, you know? Mm-hmm. And there was a few bands that kind of gave us some inspiration. Like ZZ Top gave us some in- inspiration. They were three-piece. You know, they started in an unlikely spot, you know, down there in, in Texas and in Louisiana. And, and they got the ball rolling. Guys in Rush provided some inspiration. You know, Gene and Paul provided some inspiration. And, and you know, those, those like Rush, Kiss, and, and ZZ were just a hair before. Just enough for Mike and I to sort of go, well, you know, if they can do it, we can do it. You know, it just was a very, very timely mm-hmm. um, at that moment, I would say. And, and of course, the key was, can you get a guitar player? So we went through several guitar players before we were able to find Rick. Mm-hmm. And the guitar players previously, we, we could see we're, we're, we're going to get nowhere. And uh, so we, we quickly sort of discarded those plans. And we said, no, no, we've got to find this this dude who's the Jimi Hendrix of all guitar players that we have in our mind's eye. And we had a, we had a vision for who it would be. So it was kind of a, it was kind of bizarre that we were able to, you know, track Rick down and find him. And then even, even crazier that we were able to talk him into quitting his band and coming with us. Yeah. What did you, when did you, or how did you become first aware of Rick Emmett and, how many guitarists would you estimate you went through before you got to Rick? We went through three or four, some of them just at the talking stage, several of them playing, have rehearsals. We found out about Rick through a local manager and um, booking agent. So booking agent first, manager second. So the agent said, oh, there's this guitar player. He's a new kid. He's like the young, youngest, the fastest gunslinger on the block. He's blowing everybody away sounded too good to be true we tracked his manager down and we found out where he was playing so mike and i just barnstormed the bar he was playing we just showed up you know and yeah. and kind of you know commandeered him between sets and <laughs> said you know we, we were full of baloney but 
you know, you kind of had to be. If you didn't believe in yourself, no one else would. Yeah. So we just told Rick, I mean, we're starting the greatest band in the world. We just are one. We're just one member short. And, uh, you know, he, he listened to our to our uh, our, our hype. And I, I guess he, you know, he kind of said, well, these guys are either completely full of baloney or they know what they're doing. And and then we had a jam and uh, and then the music worked out. As soon as we started playing together, there was this, you know, you get these two bluesmen who probably more like the ZZ Top mold, I'll, I'll call it, of, of, of playing or the Zeppelin style of playing. And then you had this guy who was, you know, like you said earlier, like classical, progressive, you know, like, uh, you know, Kraftwerk or, or uh, one, one of the other progressive bands from, uh, from Europe. Yes, you know, for example, like mm -hmm. that, that, that ilk, which was really not my cup of tea or, or, or Mike's cup of tea. We were, we, were, we were definitely bluesmen. So it was an interesting combo when we started playing together, how the tone and the, and the style meshed to, to form whatever the heck we became. Legend says that you showed Rick a check from Attic that was for $10,000 from the record company. Did, did that happen? And, and how was that? Uh, how was that check eventually spent? Well, that's a true story. And uh, Mike, as I said, he was <laughs> got to give Mike, a, uh, Mike, Mike credit for being ahead of the game. Like I said, if, if he, if he figured out a way to have his suits for his band at glossy eight by tens when nobody else could have them, he also figured out a way to get Attic Records to give us a check to make an album or a, or a single, I suppose, leading to an album when we didn't even have a guitar player. So there's the Mike Levine mystique. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how to explain it any better than that, but Mike is Mike was uh, he was pretty good. He it still is. Seemed, yeah, it, it always seemed like you guys had a very sort of a DIY approach to the band. You you mentioned that you're a, a perfectionist from building equipment to homemade pyro to management. Uh, you guys sort of took took the reins of all of that stuff yourself uh, to researching and buying the, the Triumph Torch. Where did that DIY attitude really come from? It's really Mike and I feeding off each other, you know? So I think when you've got, you know, two guys that are, um, you know, there's, you're at the very beginning stages of becoming an adult, you know, you're really just an adolescent. And if you get one person by themselves who, who might have some chutzpah, it's one thing, but if you start feeding off, off of each other, and I, I think there's a lot of bands, if you look, you know, whether it's, you know, your classic great, you know, uh, Jimmy Page and, and, and Robert Plant or, Lennon and McCartney or, or Mick Jagger and Keith Richards or whatever, Gene and Paul say what you will, Getty and Alex, you know, I think it takes two sometimes in a band 
to feed off each other. All it would have taken was someone else to say, you guys are full of it and kind of knock us off our horse. So we had to believe. Fortunately, when Rick came along, he kind of shrugged his shoulders and went, well, if you guys say that this is this is how it's going to go and, and this is going to work and, and you know what you're doing, it, it seems to me that you do. So Rick became a believer. And once he became a believer, it was almost it was almost cultish. He was converted. <laughs> and um, we would joke with each other. I, I got to say, humor was the glue in triumph. We were very serious about our music, but we were equally unserious about the whole rock star thing. We were des we, we really wanted to have a good time and we wanted people to have a good time and we wanted to, you know, move people in a positive direction. You know, so we 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 fed off each other through, I think, through those things, humor being an anchor, um, wanting to play, be good on our our, our instruments, be proficient musicians. Uh, we, we fed off that. Uh, we fed off the intensity of our rehearsals and our dedication to rehearsing. I mean, there was never anybody slacking off. I mean, we, we would rehearse even if one of one of us was sick or, you know, tired or hungry. Didn't matter. Like was nose to the grindstone because we had this attitude that it's us against the world. And, uh, you know, nobody expects us to make it to the big time. And yet, you know, we've 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 made our made it clear that that's what we're going to do. So we're, we better work really hard to make sure it happens. Yeah. You, you told me a little earlier about um, your hearing isn't what it once was. How much of that was the rock and roll? How much of it was the drumming? How much of it was the, the homemade pyro? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the homemade pyro. I, I think the drums and, and the fact that we had such a, a massive sound system uh, is what did my ears in. You know, thank God for the audiologists uh, of today and the magic of some of the hearing aid uh, technology like I don't know if you can see my hearing aids. They're like tiny little things. You can't even see them. Like, can you see that? Probably not. No, no. Yeah, it's, they're basically invisible, but they're so high tech. I mean, the power that's inside them now, you know, the ones that you sort of remember, those big ones that you can see that go sort of on the outside of the ear, those things are, are, are now, you know, you can, you can put more power. It's just like an iPhone. You can put more power in a chip the size of your, your baby fingernail so yeah, they're really they're really quite tremendous. So I, I'm 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 a lucky guy that you know that that technology came along. And I, I know most of the drummers who played in similar bands, uh, you know, uh, you know, had exactly the same problem. I, I know, you know, I talked to Neil Peart about his ears. They were as bad as as mine. Uh, God rest his soul. You know, and I know that many of the guitar players, Ted Nugent, I know as uh, a lot of issues with deafness and so on. So, yeah, it's something I hope hopefully the younger musicians are they're 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 smarter than we were. They're using in-ear monitors or ear protection or something. But we're, we're kind of like the generation of hockey players that had no teeth because we were, we're no mouth guards. Yeah. You know, when we were in the NA, when we were in the NHL, there's no no mouth guards. So you ended up losing your teeth. Well, same thing with hearing and rock bands in the 80s and 70s. There you go. I always thought that one of the toughest things probably to do, or it seemed like one of the toughest things to do, was drumming and singing at the same time. And and you even said, I think in the, uh, I think in in the documentary, I think you mentioned that you you didn't like the listening to yourself sing. Was there ever a consideration to let Rick do all the singing when you brought him on board, or did you just like singing so you you wanted to keep doing that? 
no, I hated singing. And uh, I, I did it because uh, it was it was just sort of necessary. So in our very first rehearsals, Rick liked singing. But what we realized is we we were we wanted to have a theatrical performance. And so it necessitated a lot of stage movement for Mike and Rick to create a lot of, you know, movement to go synchronize lights to and, and, and you know, all the effects we were using and so on. So if Rick had to stay glued to a mic stand, you got to remember this was before they had those little headset mics, you know, that, mm -hmm. that you know, are common nowadays and people run around with the microphone. You, you couldn't do that. So he would have been stuck at the mic stand. So it was kind of like, okay, over to you guys. And Mike's not much of a singer. So, and you know, he knew I could sing. And Mike knew I could sing. So I, I just kind of got stuck with the job. <laughs> and um, towards the end of our, our recording days, the last few records we made, I actually, I actually turned the corner on singing. I actually enjoyed it because uh, I ended up getting a vocal coach that was really inspiring. It's too bad I didn't have the same training uh, early on that I received uh, you know, later on because I realized actually singing is actually a blast. It's it's not as much fun as drums, I don't think, but it's 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 a it's it's a fun activity, and uh, if you get you know slightly good at it, you you want to get better, and you know you feel those little improvements, and uh, you know so I ended up having some you know singers who were I thought fabulous and were kind of idols, just like I had drummers that I looked up to. And uh, at the end of the day, yeah, I, I did like singing. But no, frankly, when we started, I, I was like, oh, please, <laughs> do I have to do this? Yeah. A lot of the Triumph albums have these little sort of showcases for Rick's intricate guitar work, these preludes and etudes and all of these uh, like suitcase blues and things like that. They didn't quite always seem to fit in with the rest of the hard rock throughout the album. Were these your opportunity to give Rick a spotlight or did, was it just, hey, we wrote this song and we're going to put it on the album? I, I think it's a, it's a tough question to answer. You know, um, I'm not sure what Rick's perspective would be we always uh mike and i really love those uh pieces that rick wrote and uh i i don't even think rick probably thought uh, that some of it belonged in our performance but back to our sort of theatrical approach we saw this as a real great opportunity to change the mood in an arena from you know this you know over the top bombastic rock and you know soaring guitars and flashing lights to something intricate and up close and personal and and so really change the mood and and take the audience in a total different direction so i think some of it uh stemmed from our ambitions to be cinematic in our in our approach and and not sort of simple fundamentalists mm -hmm. i would be remiss if i didn't bring up the fact that it, the uh the 40th anniversary of allied forces box set just came out was that another one of your brainstorms where did the 40th anniversary box set uh sort of come from the, the what to include and all of that stuff gotta credit a guy named andy curran andy's a torontonian a, a very good musician in his own right worked with the guys in in, in rush quite a bit before 
working with us and and he came up with the uh design of uh of the of the entire package and did an i think a spectacular job yes. um so he was he was hired by our label to do the work but uh andy's been a long time friend of mine here in toronto he's a great bass player by the way and uh boy i think he did a smoking job on the on that box set and again if it was left up to us i don't know that we, that we would have come up with anything you know nearly as as unique and it, it takes that that lens just like we were talking about with the directors in the film you know andy had his own lens into triumph so we could just you know let him loose in the archives at metalworks and go here's all this stuff there's piles of it but it's it's like almost almost like a, a landfill site there's so much stuff like where do you start whereas he was able to just walk over and, and see something and go oh my god look at this i'm going to use this and to me it was insignificant but to him it was a, a gold mine and now when i see the entire box set i go okay i get it now i see that he could see something certainly i couldn't see and he did a great job Might we see something similar for Never Surrender and Thunder Seven when it when those 40ths come around? I would think so. You know, it's 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 uh, until we did the first one, you know, you you kind of didn't know uh, being in the band how it was going to turn out, how it would be received, and so on. But having seen how phenomenally well received it was, and how how cool the package is, as long as the label wants to do it, I I, I know that. Mike and Rick and I would be in favor of of that for sure. Mm -hmm. Technology wise, obviously, there's there's been a lot of strides in audio. There's five point one. There's there's now this Dolby Atmos. H have there been any discussions on, you know, doing those types of releases with your music? Well, uh, as far as Atmos is concerned, we've had some discussions, but we haven't done anything about it yet. We've uh, released uh, high definition tracks previously. But I think Atmos is taking things to kind of a different level and a different audience, also a different backbone as far as technology is concerned. So I would hope that we would that we would do that. Since this is Michael's record collection, I'm going to be a little bit selfish now and ask you about my favorite Triumph song, which is When the Lights Go Down.
and I I was curious as to it starts with that great acoustic intro and and ends with it also, and in the middle is just an all out balls to the wall rocker. Did the song start with the acoustic part and and then evolve from there, or or was that added after the rocking part was written, or how did that come about? After because the the uh, the slide guitar part is really sort of a a bluesed up version of what I'm going to call the the harder rock uh, treatment of the rhythm guitars in the in the main body of the song. So I can't quite recall when we were writing the song. A lot of the times, you know, some of the writing and producing and arrangement ideas would flow pretty free, freely between the three of us, among the three of us. So I can't re quite recall at the moment, uh, other than that it was the product of one of those, you know, kind of writing, jamming, feeling our way through the groove types of sessions. But I, I thought it was quite effective. I, I love the, the Dobro guitar and, uh, and it's one of my favorite parts, kind of like in Fight the Good Fight, the recorder melody gives it the Celtic flair that uh, you wouldn't get without the, the recorder. Triumph music, one of the the hallmarks of of your some of your biggest songs is the positive messages in them. And some of some of the fans in the documentary talked about those messages: hold on, magic power, fight the good fight, follow your heart. All of those things. Was that a conscious effort by the band to 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 be that positive force and and to not write about some of the the trite kind of cliche darker things that some of the other bands at the time were writing about i i think that what what would happen is we had our share of trite garbage and <laughs> but we never liked it you know and and so you know i think all musicians you know when you're writing you're trying to find the divining rod is is trying to take you somewhere you're not sure where it's going but you're following that divining rod and trying to get to the promised land and for us you know, the positive messages, we seem to be good at it. Rick, particularly, I give him the most credit in that, in that regard. But what we started to notice is some of our fans would respond really well to the positive messages. And sometimes in an over-the-top way, I mean, I remember being backstage at a show we played in, uh, it was either Champaign or, or Peoria, Illinois, and uh, this gal came backstage she'd requested to meet us and we got bibles that were you know gold embossed and uh, talking about you know our positive lyrics which is kind of an interesting anecdote that something like that would happen to a rock band um but i i think more importantly if in back to the documentary you you saw this when you screened it some of the fans that we had that had had some tough times along the way you could see they really drew a lot of inspiration from some of these songs 
and and that's something that you know as a band i know i can speak for for rick and for mike and say that we're we're all very proud of that but you know honestly michael i think some of it it almost happens by accident you know you uh, like i said i think we, uh, everybody that's written songs they have their share of lyrics that they hate so as a band we're no different um we'd like to take the eraser out and go back to certain things and get rid of them and and look at the best work and go gee whiz why wasn't everything at this standard but that's part of i think what drove us towards those those sort of lyrical themes was when, when we started to realize gee you know maybe we've got a, we've got a talent here that we should flex and um you know some of the some of the cheesier stuff uh yeah it's it's quicker and it's faster and so on but i, I think a lot of bands regret some of their poorer lyrical content and i think some of the bands that really stood the test of time if you look at why they did even if they're hard rock bands it it comes back to a lot of their lyrics if you look at led zeppelin the rolling stones those two prime examples boy they had some great lyrics more more than i really realized as a young musician le learning their learning their music because you were focused on as a drummer you were focused on you know oh john bonham listen to him isn't he wonderful you know or you know if you're a guitar player listen to jimmy page but at the end of the day you might skip over the lyrics you get a little later and a little deeper perspective and then you go back and you go gee you know some of those lyrics were great and some of them you know the zepp lyrics for example might be quite obtuse and um you know you kind of wonder at times what the heck is he saying but the more time is allows you to have that you know look back perspective i think the the, the better you know some of those lyrics uh end up being and mm. uh certainly the the rolling stones have always had some phenomenal lyrics I, although i i would imagine if you you, you ask Mick jagger he would say the same thing that they've he has some lyrics he hates <laughs> yeah probably so Which Triumph album was it where you and Mike finally got that sound and got got everything that you wanted that you had envisioned when you started the band? I think Allied Forces because you know when we spent the time that we spent at Metalworks on that one and we had more control over the outcome of the sound. Uh, you know, I know for me it was for sure that that was like my feeling about the sounds we got on all the instruments and so on. Technology was improving a little bit too, Michael. You got to remember, like, you know, records from the from the late '60s and the early '70s, and the even in in the latter part of the '70s, moving into the '80s, like the equipment was changing. The number of tracks you had was changing. The tools, sound shaping tools that you had at your disposal were changing. So it was a pivotal time to get different tones and different uh, treatments on instruments. 
Yeah. Do you have a favorite Triumph album or a favorite Triumph song? Um, I, I, I don't think so. As far as an album is concerned, I like bits and pieces of, of all the albums for different reasons. I, I, I like the song I love for the weekend on progressions of power, for example, because I feel like working people can relate to it as everybody can relate to five o'clock on Friday. I like fight the good fight because I feel it. It says something that. Yeah, the military related to it, I'm sure, as I've spoken to many men in uniform who love it. But I, I, I think you, you did not. You, you could be anybody and, and relate to those lyrics and the sports teams related to those lyrics. We had baseball teams relate to those lyrics. I love playing that song. You mentioned lights go down. I mean, when the lights go down, what I liked about that tune is it reminded me of a triumph concert. And, and I wrote those lyrics and I, and I wrote them thinking about being backstage and, and, when those lights go down and the, you know, the fog and everything that we produced, you know, and a, the lyrics steaming like a witch's brew and all that stuff. Yeah. Those were basically the feelings that it was like to be backstage at a triumph show and the anticipation of, you know, our laser face coming out and all the fans going crazy and the laser beams going nuts and all the, the mayhem that we were about to assault the audience with. So that has its way of energizing me when I hear that track. But I, I could go on and on, you know, uh, about different tracks and different things that appeal. But I don't I can't say, Michael, that there's one album where I go, oh, yeah, it's all about this album. And I also can't say I can't pick a song and go, it's all about this song. There were bits and pieces along the way that I thought had had impact. And then again, there's there's other pieces of, of what our work that I'd love to take in a race or two. <laughs> Before I let you go, I, I wanted to just kind of pick your brain on on what your listening habits are like these days to music. Certainly, when you were young and you you were becoming a musician, you were inspired by songs. You you had songs that moved you, and you would probably enjoyed listening to music uh, in your spare time. Do you do that these days? Do you take time out to listen to bands and listen to albums? I don't listen as much as I could because you know I've sort of moved on in my life to to music education and concert production like uh, video production and so on that i'm looking forward i'm i'm working on a mixed reality concept for triumph to come back um in mixed reality so you know that's a big focus of mine and music education 
Metalworks has developed a, a platform to deliver free music education to kids worldwide on cell phones. Uh, it hasn't launched yet, but it's something that's, you know, takes up a lot of my time. So really, Michael, music listening for me is kind of in bits and pieces. So I listen to uh, any, you know, I have friends that send me things to listen to that. Okay, can you listen to, you know, my, my kid's record or Johnny's playing guitar? Can you listen to Johnny play guitar? And then and then it it ranges to when I'm with my my family uh, and I'm in the car and I, I turn around to if, if Holly, my daughter, Holly's in the car. I just turn around and wink at her. and She knows that means ZZ Top. And boom, <laughs> up comes, uh, you know, up comes on Bad I'm Nationwide and I'm rocking. So I can never get enough of Led Zeppelin or, or, or Deep Purple. I, I could listen to those bands for a thousand hours. But, you know, I love I love, um, you know, some of the great. Uh, the great blues uh, blues players and and even classic bands like Booker T and the MGs, you know, and all all the work that Steve Cropper did and the and the all the artists from Stax Volt Records. There, there, there's just about nothing there that doesn't rev me up. You know, the Sam and Dave's and the Eddie Floyd's and the, you know, uh, you know those artists. I just thought they were they were fabulous, mm-hmm. and and I and I I see that that blues motif that's woven forward into the Led Zeppelins and so on of of a more modern era. Yeah. Well, you got the 40th anniversary of Allied Forces set out. You've got the, obviously, the documentary. What else? Uh, you mentioned this uh, mixed reality uh, triumph thing. What, what else are you working on, Gil? So the next thing coming down the, uh, coming down the pike is, is um, our buddy Mike Klink, who's uh, one of the great record producers in the world. Uh, I guess he's most famous for all his work with Guns N' Roses because he did just about all of their records. Mike is producing a Triumph tribute album right now. And uh, he has just an amazing roster of the most fantastic uh, musicians who are all big names in their own right, um, played with very you know, famous bands and, uh, or famous singers in, in, in famous bands. And they're doing um, a whole record of Triumph covers, but doing it their way. Don't want to let the cat out of the bag as to the list but i can tell you it's a very star-studded list uh the record's about half done again we're probably looking at early next year i would hope in either the first or second quarter released and i think the triumph fans will just have a blast with that like I- i've heard a couple of tracks already and um you know some of the treatments are similar to how triumph treated the songs but others are so different that it- it's almost unrecognizable that it's even the same song and uh 
really fabulous. You know, we, we got inspired with the number of bands that were doing triumph covers just on their own and, and just phenomenal covers all, 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 all over YouTube. And, uh, we've, um, seen how, you know, the music resonated with those artists and for them to cover it. And then that, that, I suppose, bore the idea. Maybe, maybe we should do this at another, at another level and, uh, round Hill engaged Mike and, uh, said let's let's do a triumph tribute album that takes some of these songs and and puts them with uh other musicians who have, have great ideas of their own and and mike's production techniques and let's see where it leads so it's a recreation it'll, it'll be really fantastic i think is there a, a working title for this yet there is not okay. there is not so uh if you think one up I'll fire it you know, off to you. <laughs> yeah, fire it off, you know, or any of your listeners. <laughs> yeah, sounds great. Gil Moore of the legendary rock trio Triumph from Canada. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure to talk to you, and I wish you the best of luck with the with the tribute album and with uh, all the other endeavors you've got going on. Thanks. Thanks very much, Michael. You stay well during COVID and uh, God bless all your all your fans. I hope that uh, they're all safe, too. And uh, it was nice speaking with you. Thank you. Michael's Record Collection is hosted and produced by Michael Citro. Logo graphic courtesy of Jerry Cutchins. Follow Michael's Record Collection on social media, at Mike's Records on Twitter, and Michael's Record Collection on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. If you like what you hear, you can support the show through our Patreon, at patreon.com slash Michael's Record Collection. For the free newsletter version, go to substack.com and just type Michael's Record Collection into the search bar. Thanks for listening. <laughs>